Today's sermon scripture reading is found on page 938 in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along there. And that brings you to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, page 938 in your Pew Bible. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus speaking. Matthew chapter 6, just three verses, starting in verse 1 and then skipping down to verse 9 and 10. Jesus reminds his hearers, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Skipping down to verse 9, Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are in heaven and that you rule. And we know that your kingdom is here. And we pray for it to grow. We ask that your will be done in us and in our brother Mark as he comes and brings your word and opens it up to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Yuri. Before we get uh, going here, I just want to acknowledge, I see back there in the back, Miss um, Carol Kaler, and we're very happy to see you, Carol. And uh, Carol has um, not been able to be with us regularly of late. And... Um, we didn't know this at the time, but we now share something that is um, quite challenging for us and our loved ones, and that is um, uh, that we both uh, struggle with Parkinson's. Uh, Carol is uh, several years ahead of me in this, and um, it is a testament to the Lord that he sustains us, he watches over us, he strengthens us, he gives us people who care for us and about us, and he continues to use us um, regardless of our human frailties. And I'm very thank you, thankful for that. So welcome back, Carol. It's very good to see you. And Shauna, thanks for bringing mom to, uh, to church here this morning. Um, the Lord Jesus has been remarkably gracious to me over the last while, and I want you to know that this morning. He's been gracious in the normal yet profound ways of giving me a loving, beautiful, caring, and capable wife and a family to go with us, and which I cannot imagine life without. He's also been gracious by dealing with me gently over my sin and my resistance to personal growth and doing what I need to do to deal appropriately with this season in life. I'm now 60 years old. I've never been 60 before, so I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, some of you know what that 
is like, I, I, I guess. Still early in the onset of Parkinson's disease, it, cur currently it's little more than an inconvenience, unless I take a header off the platform on a Sunday morning, which I almost did a couple of weeks ago. And, um, and I also struggle with an apparently unquenchable addiction to books that my sweet wife and eldest daughter have sworn themselves to quench, so we'll let you know how that goes in the future. He's also given me friends, most of you are here this morning, who understand the various challenges that I have, and even when you don't understand them, you haven't given up on me. And for all of these reasons and more, I'd like to begin this morning with Philippians 4, beginning with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, so do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here's the promise. And the peace of God, which, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. So right off the hop, as we get started this morning, I want us to notice a few things from this important passage from this little book of Philippians and especially concerning prayer. First, the context of effective prayer, according to the Holy Spirit here in Philippians, is constant and consistent rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say again, rejoice. Second, even as we pray, rejoicing, we let our reasonableness be known to everyone, which I think would be the opposite of letting our flakiness known to everyone, which seems to be more the case to the outside world that is outside the church. For sure, everyone here, let our reasonableness be known to everyone, means primarily those outside the church. And maybe even as we pray for them, we, they, they will come to see the reasonableness of our biblical Christian practice and lives. Third, we are to worry about nothing, but pray about everything. And this is an ongoing, lifelong, biblical Christian practice, letting our prayers and intercessions be made known to God, or as the Holy Spirit puts it in Philippians 4, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God. Fourth, there is an absolute promise for real, effective, and fruitful praying, and it's probably not what we might expect or even want. God's promise as we pray is not a particular result or outcome but a condition of our hearts and minds. And the peace of God, which, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, fifthly, I bypass the most important reality, truth, and belief that is included in these verses and indeed in the biblical Christian understanding of prayer. Did anyone catch it? The Lord 
is at hand. There is one and only one reality, one and only one truth, and one and only one belief that animates all effective and fruitful praying and that should move us to pray always, no matter the situations in which we find ourselves, day after day and year after year, good or bad, easy or hard, glad or sad, life or death, personal or collective, temporal or eternal. That one reality, that one truth, that one belief is God in Christ Jesus. If there is no God, why should we pray? If we're not sure whether God exists, our prayers would be at best wishful hoping in a possible sky God who might do some magic for us or for me or for someone we love. But God is not a genie waiting around to hear from us and from whom we request works of magic. He's not an imaginary sky God and neither is prayer magic. So if God in Christ Jesus is the ultimate reality in all time and space throughout the universe forever, if God in Christ Jesus is the one truth in a world filled up with lies, and if God in Christ Jesus is the foundation for all true belief, then prayer will change things. That is, praying to him. But even that is less than a full biblical Christian understanding of prayer. A better, more mature way of understanding and saying it is that such prayer, based on this reality, this truth, and this belief that God is, it changes not just things, but even more importantly, it changes us as we pray. Now, before we move into our text for Matthew 6, this is a great place to take just a couple of minutes to review our central truths, both for our current series on prayer and for our individual sermons so far concerning the biblical Christian practice of prayer. And you have them there in your bulletins on the inside left side. I'd like you to have these as a sort of quick reference and summary for the, to the practice of biblical Christian prayer, at least according to these biblical passages that we're looking at these uh, five or six weeks, um, and we can take them along with us and practice as we preach. The first is to our series overall, which we began with, two, uh, began with two Sundays ago with the title, Prayer, What Difference Does It Make? That's our series title and the sermon title, What is Prayer Really? And we saw from two parables of Jesus that biblical Christian prayer is an ongoing, deliberate, and personal expression of trust now and future hope in the one true and living God by saving, submitted, and sustaining faith in Jesus Christ, our forever Savior and Sovereign. And last Sunday, from Jesus' general teaching leading up to the disciples' prayer, Matthew 6, verses 1 through 8, we saw the importance of keeping our prayer real, such that biblical Christian prayer is also an honest, sincere, and hopeful expression of deep need for ourselves and our loved ones and sacrificial intercession for others before God in Christ Jesus 
who is still our forever Savior and Sovereign. And then so this morning we're looking at the Disciples' Prayer 2, Our Good Father. And the central and essential truth is this. Biblical Christian prayer is first a recognition and acknowledgement of the sovereign goodness and love of God in Christ Jesus, our forever Savior and Sovereign, and an agreement with his true word, his righteous will, and his good purposes on the earth. Biblical Christian prayer is first a recognition and acknowledgement of the sovereign goodness and love of God in Christ Jesus, our forever Savior and Sovereign. It doesn't start with us. And an agreement with his true word, his righteous will, and his good purposes on the earth. And this is where all true biblical Christian prayer begins. Not with ourselves or our needs, not with our aspirations or those of our loved ones, not with our congregation or even the most remote, unreached, and lost people group on the other side of the earth or across the street. All truly effective and fruitful biblical and Christian prayer begins with God in Christ Jesus. His character, his glory, his word, his perspective, his purposes, his promises, and especially his sovereign love mercy, and grace. In the end, God's will will be met and fulfilled. So from the practical beginning point of all biblical Christian prayer, it is first and foremost a recognition and acknowledgement of the sovereign goodness and love of God in Christ Jesus, our forever Savior and Sovereign, and an agreement with his true word, his righteous will, and his good purposes on the earth. So let's look at it for the next few minutes. So there in Matthew 6, we'll, we'll get started actually in Matthew 5, but I'll come back to it in just a minute. Once we see this, the first overriding reality of this passage in Matthew 6 is its placement right in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Right in the middle. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 6, verse 1, he begins to teach on general works of righteousness, but he only mentions two here, giving to the needy and prayer. And as such, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's not teaching generally to the world here, to a general crowd. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to live as his disciples and here how to pray, which is why I really think this ought to be called the disciples' prayer rather than the Lord's prayer, but I won't beat that drum any anymore today at least. Our first truth coming from this word of Jesus on prayer, Jesus's purpose here in his Sermon on the Mount is to teach his followers, including us, how to live as his disciples as we live in our time and place. Jesus' purpose is to teach his disciples how to live as disciples. And we see that in chapter 5, verse 1. Turn there with me, uh, Matthew 5 and verse 1. <clears throat> Here we pick up the story from narrator Matthew. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And so from there, from uh, Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 to Matthew chapter 7 verse last 
Jesus teaches this most famous prayer ever called the Sermon on the Mount, and it's all to teach his disciples, to teach us how to live as his disciples, including the prayer that we find here in chapter 6. So turn there with me, chapter 6 and verse 1. We picked it up right here uh, last week. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Does that mean public prayer is not allowed or not good? No. It, It is, though, if we are practicing our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And we've all done it. Anybody who's ever done any public ministry has done it. So we have to be very careful here to allow the Holy Spirit to keep us clean in this regard. That we are responding to the leading of the Spirit and not to the leading of the crowd or wanting to be seen as something or someone. He says here, beware. The NIV says, be careful. I think beware is probably more what he meant in terms of severity. Beware, it's a warning, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Why? Because you have gotten the reward already that you sought. If we're doing something or we're saying something or we're praying or we're preaching in order to be seen by others to be a good preacher or to be seen as spiritual or to be seen as something in the eyes of others, we've gotten our reward. There's nothing left for God to give, to do. So beware, Jesus says. And then we can take this just seamlessly from chapter 6, verse 1, and on to verse 9. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward for your, from your Father who is in heaven. Pray then like this. You see that? Pray then like this. And we noted last week that, that there, is a, there, there is a possible difference in what Jesus intended and how we have received this special prayer. Some places it's called the model prayer. Almost everywhere it's called the Lord's prayer. Um, I'd like to call it the disciples prayer. Um, but, but note this in, in verse 9. He doesn't say pray this. He says pray like this. He's giving us a model, a template, not a script. It's it's not wrong, it's not bad to pray the the Lord's Prayer as we do, for example, in a worship service. But I'm really, really skeptical, having grown up in a denomination in the United States where we we recited, and that's what it was. We didn't pray it. We recited the the Lord's Prayer every Sunday without fail in exactly the same place in the service every single Sunday. And after a while, it starts to lose its meaning. We can do it literally on our, in our sleep, and maybe we did. That wasn't Jesus' intention. He wasn't giving us a script. He was giving us a template. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning.
And as I mentioned last Sunday, as Jesus transitions here in verse 9 from his general teaching about keeping it real in the practice of our biblical Christian faith, including our praying, he's teaching us how disciples pray. He's not teaching us what to pray, at least not primarily. The words are beautiful, of course, but they're more model than script. So Jesus' purpose here in his Sermon on the Mount, including this passage on how to pray, is to teach his followers, including us, how to live as his disciples as we live in our time and place. The second part of verse 9 begins Jesus' model prayer, teaching his disciples, including us as his disciples today, how we ought to pray. Let's think of it in, in this way. Just uh, let, me, let me summarize it this way. Biblical Christian prayer begins and ends with relating to God as our Father for the good, sovereign, and loving Father that he is, while revering even his name. Biblical Christian prayer begins and ends with relating to God as our Father for the good, sovereign, and loving Father that he is, while revering even his name. Now, you may have noticed, but the goodness and fatherhood of God are two of the character traits most under assault today, and perhaps for the last 30 years or more. And the reason, I believe, is that if God's goodness can be undermined, if God's goodness can be questioned or even brought into suspicion, then nothing else matters. If God is not good, then nothing by him or about him would be good either, and so he can be dismissed. Yet everything we believe about God And every prayer we ever pray to him is grounded in the biblical Christian truth that God is our Father who is in heaven, as Jesus puts it here, and God is good from beginning to end, through and through, relationally, eternally, and even infinitely so. There is no aspect of God's character, there is no portion of his being that is not good. Another aspect of God's true being that is under constant assault is that because he's not material or because he doesn't have physical form, then he's imaginary. He's the great sky god of the delusional because he can't be seen, he can't be shown, he can't be proven, he can't be falsified is kind of the scientism's approach to this question. God doesn't exist for those reasons. But what does the Bible say? Well, it says a lot. And specifically about the identity and character of God. In fact, the Bible is God's revelation of his Holy Spirit, by his Holy Spirit rather, of who he is, what he's about, and how he works. We find one of the best passages on these matters in Hebrews 11. Verse 1, now faith is the assurance, the word there is literally probably better translated the substance. This pulpit is something of substance, right? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The conviction, or here maybe a better way of understanding it, is the evidentiary proof. This is a, a term of art in the court. This is an evidentiary proof or a proof 
of things not seen. So now, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidentiary proof of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Were we there? No. Do we believe it? Yes. Why? Not only because that's what the Bible says, but also there's nothing to refute that premise. As sophisticated as we are in our science. For by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. And without faith it is impossible to please him that is please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith goes beyond the material, faith goes beyond the logical, faith goes beyond the the philosophical, although it does not violate any of those things. Faith is the assurance, the substance of things hoped for, the conviction, the evidentiary proof of things not seen. We also get much help from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 5, 1, and then verse 5 again. Let's start there at verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 4. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction, I could insert here Parkinson's, is preparing our I'm sorry, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Check this out. This is an incredible statement. For the things that are seen are transient, that is passing or temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal, meaning lasting or forever. Verse 1 of chapter 5, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. Notice the contrast. Tent, building. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He, verse 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, concerning God's goodness, there are literally hundreds of Bible verses that attest to the goodness of God and all he does. But two of the best come from the book of Psalms. Actually, more than two of the best, but the two that I'm referring to today comes from the book of Psalms. One is Psalm 145, and I'd like for you to turn there because I'm going to be reading it from the text. If you're using our pew Bibles, it's on page 612 and 613. Um, Psalm 145, 1 through 9. Hold your place there because we'll be coming back to it twice in the next few minutes. But right now, I want us to hear the first few verses of Psalm 86. You can turn there if you want. If you just want to hold your place in 145, that's fine. And, and, and I want us to hear it because it's a prayer of David. So it's a, it's a prayer. It's right in the context of our series. And secondly, the basis for David's prayer is God's goodness, grace, and love. Psalm 86, verses 1 to 7. A prayer of David. Incline your ear, 
O Lord Yahweh, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. So we'll be talking about God's name here in a little bit. It's one of my favorite topics. I know I have like 100 favorite topics. It really is one of my favorite topics because I believe every time a name occurs in the scripture for God, it tells us something. And not only that, but what he's doing at that time, what's going on in the, in the historical context, all of that tells us something about him, his character. And that is infinite, eternal. The scripture says God never changes. So if he's good in this way in one place, he's always good in that way, but something else may, may be showing later on. Incline your ear, O Lord Yahweh. This is his name. This is not a title. That's the main thing here. Whenever we see the upper caps, the, the small capital letters, this is God's personal name, Yahweh, which he revealed to us in scripture from Genesis chapter two, but also Moses in, Gen in Exodus chapter three um, in the burning bush, Yahweh. And answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life. And this is a statement only the psalmist could make, only David would have probably the audacity to make, for I am godly. <laughs> I, I'd never go to God saying that. Even if I was in great need, I would never say that because he would know, well, it's not true. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. This is Adonai. This is not Yahweh. Yahweh. That's why I, I do appreciate the King James attempt to deal with this issue by using the name Jehovah. They didn't quite get it right in terms of the actual letters, but they were trying to distinguish between kind of the title Lord Adonai, which is here in verse 3, be gracious to me, O Adonai, my Lord, it literally means. Um, but they tried to deal with that, and I, and I respect that and appreciate that very much. I, I like to do the same thing. For to you... Do I cry all the day? Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, this is Adonai again, do I lift up my soul. Watch this, verse 5. For you, O Lord, Adonai, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Adonai, Lord Adonai, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. So now let's hear from David in, verse, in chapter 145 of the Psalms, Psalm 145. And we'll, we'll hear something. If, 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 we can, if we can listen carefully enough, I think we'll hear something actually quite close to the disciples' prayer. Psalm 145, a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and, the praise, and praise your name forever and ever. Verse 5, great is the Lord Yahweh and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness, verse seven. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness 
and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is glory, the Lord Yahweh is glorious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord Yahweh is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord Yahweh, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So biblical Christian prayer begins and ends with relating to God as our father for the good sovereign and loving father that he is while revering even his name. Now, so far as honoring or revering or hallowing God's name, we could say much, and I have over the years, and I even have this morning, about the names of God in Scripture and what they can tell us about God. Elohim, Yahweh, Adonai, El Shaddai, and combinations of these, such as El, uh, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Elohim Adonai, and the like. But given the context and situation, I'm pretty sure that God would prefer that we call him by his spirit-given name to us, which is Abba. Father, his spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God by which we cry, Abba, Father. Finally, we come to one of my favorite topics in the Bible and the biblical Christian life, and that is God's kingdom. And we'll finish with this. What is God's kingdom? Where is God's kingdom? What does... God's kingdom look like or what will it look like? Is it now or future or both? Is it on the earth or in heaven or both? Who are the citizens of God's kingdom? What is the role of citizens of God's kingdom? So we don't have the time even to begin to answer these questions. God's kingdom is vast and worth a whole series to itself, a whole book, a whole series of books perhaps. But God does give us some specific prayer points or Jesus does give us some specific prayer points, and I'd like to summarize it in this, it's verse 10. All biblical Christian prayer must be a recognition of, a submission to, and a desire for the rule and reign of God in Christ Jesus in all, through all, over all, forever and ever, amen. All biblical Christian prayer must be a recognition of, a submission to, and a desire for the rule and reign of God in Christ Jesus in all, through all, and over all, forever and ever. Amen. In the disciples' prayer here, Jesus gives us three prayer points regarding God's kingdom by which we can join him through our prayers and through our consistent, obedient action. And as we look at these three prayer points, let's remember that the thing making these words meaningful in the mouth of Christ was, is, and forever will be the godly character and the sacrificial work of Christ to move them from aspiration to reality. Even as he spoke these words about the coming of God's kingdom, and though he was and would be its king, Jesus was living as a kingdom citizen engaged in bringing about the conditions for the return and restoration of God's kingdom, namely living a life that was wholly devoted to imaging God and representing him on the earth. Does that sound familiar? Jesus was not only the son of God, he was also 100% a human being, and in that sense only, our perfect example 
He's not a perfect example as the son of God because while we are adopted sons and children in that sense, there's only one eternal son of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come is an aspirational call and an expression of personal desire to see and be a part of restoring the rule and reign of God on the earth as it is in heaven. And here in the disciples' prayer, Jesus teaches us how to enter into this work with him. First, we submit ourselves to the rule, reign, and work of God in Christ Jesus. This is the essential first step, and it is an absolutely necessary step that will result in our becoming more like Jesus in both character and in action, thus becoming active kingdom citizens ourselves in what Jesus himself would later call the church. Listen to me now. The only place on the earth that God's kingdom is being restored and people and God's people are joyfully returning to submission to his rule and reign is in the church. The rule and reign of God in Christ Jesus in the church is to emulate the rule and reign of God in Christ Jesus in heaven. The most powerful and profound way his rule and his reign on the earth will be manifested is in our purposeful unity with him and with each other. Elsewhere, the Bible calls this purposeful unity a work of the Holy Spirit in us, among us, and through us, and the Bible calls it fellowship in or fellowship of the Spirit. Listen to this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, and then chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. We simply cannot do things our way and be submitted to God and his ways. And if it is not happening in the church, then we are not true kingdom citizens. We are rebels working in opposition to the rule, reign, and will of God in Christ Jesus. And we should think long and hard about that. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your will be done is more of a particular or a focused statement than your kingdom come, isn't it? And yet it's not all that specific. What is God's will at any moment? What is God's will on any topic? What is God's will for my life, for your life, for Bethesda Church? Should I marry her? Should I marry him? Should I go to university or the mission field? Should I take this job or that one? Nevertheless, Jesus has been quite specific in that he has given his marching orders to each and every one of his disciples. This is, after all, the disciples' prayer. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Beyond that, if we are doing that, 
whether we're going across the street or across the city or across the province or across the nation or across cultures or across language groups or across the earth, and we are doing that with other like-minded and like-hearted disciples of Jesus as component parts of his church, then we may find that we have, because he gives us a surprisingly wide latitude as to the other things in life. Or maybe they just become clearer, less urgent, because we have put them in their proper place. And that, because we have a properly ordered perspective that is God's eternal perspective on our lives, on our ministries, on our families, on our forevers. Finally, on earth as it is in heaven. There will be, in fact there is now, no question whose kingdom it will be on earth and in heaven ultimately. We do, however, find ourselves in a time on the earth when the rule and reign of God are veiled to the world. And there's good reason for that. Even Jesus said that Satan, the devil, is the God of this world. It will not always be so. And so we pray that order, God's will, God's word, God's rule and authority and reign will be restored on the earth as it is in heaven. In fact, it has been disordered in this way since the fall of humanity into sin and the immediate usurping of God's rule and reign on the earth, but not in heaven. The devil was thrown out of heaven, if you'll, you'll uh, remember your readings in the Apocryphals. This fall, this is important for some of us, this fall is where all manner of disorder, disruption, disease, and eventually physical death come from, none of which God either willed or wanted. So let's not blame him for it. He didn't do it. He is, however, repairing it. But these will all be put away, disorder, disruption, disease, and eventually death itself will be the last enemy vanquished eventually and ultimately. And this is why we should and why we must be continually praying that God's rule, God's reign, and God's will on the earth will be restored to a reality that approximate that which is in heaven or as it is in heaven. So all biblical Christian prayer must be a recognition of, a submission to, and a desire for the rule and reign of God in Christ Jesus in all, through all, and over all, forever and ever. Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We started with Philippians 4, let's end with it too. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, 
If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you all. I do hope to see you right back here in a week's time. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we once again thank you for another gathering, another experience, another opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us, Lord, not to prefer one or the other. Both are necessary, spirit and truth. We can't have truth without the spirit, and and the spirit won't won't have us without the truth. (laughs) Help us, Lord, to worship you rightly, to take our place in your family as your adopted sons and daughters, children of the living God, living as one with you and with each other, just as Jesus prayed in his prayer in John chapter 17, and that our unity, our purposeful unity, would approximate the unity of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And love, Lord, help us to love. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 John chapter 5. First five verses. Everyone, somebody say everyone. Somebody else say everyone. Everyone. The text says everyone, so it's everyone. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Lord, help us to believe, not just in our doctrine, not just in our mind and our hearts, but with our lives, that results in a love for you and a love for all people, human beings, equally created in your image to represent you on the earth, and you are restoring your rule and reign in us, one person at a time. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of that. Help us, help us, help us to love you with all we are, expressed through obedience, loving each other. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next time.